0: So here we are again in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, as Carphoon said. We've been spending some weeks here in this part of the Scriptures, uh, and this is written to people who were in one way or another struggling and suffering because of their faith in Jesus, Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as their Lord and God. Now, Jesus himself, of course, didn't he, had said that whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever follows me, well, they will have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. There'll be something that has to be laid down and something that has to be taken up. There are choices to make. Even Jesus had said that. And those choices of following Jesus can often lead to times of trouble and struggle and suffering. So basically, the message is that if you want a trouble-free life, don't become a Christian. Uh, Or if you have become a Christian, that's what you might need to expect. And here we are then with, with these people. If you just turn back one page in Hebrews to chapter 10, you can see something of what they were going through. Look what he tells us about them in verse 32. He says, Remember those earlier days after you received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated, and you suffered along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence because it will be richly rewarded. And so he goes on to encourage them then through this chapter to go on persevering by faith in spite of what couldn't yet be seen, what was only in the future, and in spite of all that they would have to endure. And here in Hebrews 11, as we've been seeing, we've been looking at a whole catalog of men and women in the Old Testament who lived by faith and persevered, leading ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as we saw in our memory verse in chapter 12. A couple of weeks ago, we were with Abraham, uh, and we saw he was tested and paid the cost of his obedience and gave us a foretaste of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. And now this evening, then, we come here to Moses. And once again, we're going to consider how he had to make choices and actions that were based on faith and challenging us to do the same. And so our main text then uh, is those verses from verse 23 in the chapter down to verse 28. But we ought just briefly, for the sake of completeness, to take note of how the writer of Hebrews here puts three other examples just before Moses and then three more just after him. And just in order to make sure we're treating the Scriptures fairly, we should at least look at those. Can you see them there, first of all, in verses 20, 21, and 22? He refers to Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, and Jacob, the son of Isaac, and Joseph, the son of Jacob. And all three of them, says Hebrews, at their deathbeds, more or less, at the very end of their lives, they look to the future, and they express blessings on the basis of an unseen future, because they knew the story they were in. They knew what God had promised. And so they were blessing their descendants in the light of God's future, God's story, that they would never themselves actually see in their earthly lifetime. That's the first three. And then at the other end of Moses, in verses 29, 30, and 31, we have three events that he mentioned. Uh, the, the crossing of the sea. By the people of Israel to escape from Egypt, the defeat of Jericho when they got into the land, and then the conversion of Rahab, the prostitute who was there in Jericho at the time. And all three of those events must have seemed crazy at the time to the people who did them. I mean, those people who were told to walk forward off the beach into the sea in the middle of the night with the Egyptian army behind them, (laughs) it's a crazy thing to do, isn't it? Or those soldiers who had to walk in silence around a fortified city seven days in a row with a bunch of priests blowing ram's horns in front of them and a box covered with gold representing God. I mean, that's not the way to win a battle, is it? Pretty crazy. must have seemed crazy to the people watching in Jericho. Or that Rahab, that woman who sheltered these enemy spies who had come to her city knowing full well that her life was in danger for doing so but because she knew and believed in the God they represented. So these were indeed crazy actions, but they were done in faith in God's story, the exodus story of redemption, victory over God's enemies, and indeed personal salvation because Rahab was saved. Her life was spared. And so we come then to Moses in the middle of our story. And here's my main point. This is what I want to get hold of this evening. Uh, Right now, sort of up front and then all the way through, that choices and actions of faith that seem costly or indeed crazy at the time make sense in the light of God's story and the future that God promises. That's what we're looking at in the story of Moses. And I want us to think, really, first of all, of Moses' parents, and then of his decisions, and then of his reasons. Those are our three where's we're going. Here, first of all, then, to uh, Moses' parents there in verse 23, where we read it by faith. Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they weren't afraid of the king. Now, all of us, of course, owe our lives to our parents who gave us birth. But Moses actually owed his life, uh, as it was in the story of Exodus, to four very feisty women and one little girl called Miriam. Well, we discover that much later in the story that that was her name. Stories there in Exodus chapter 1, chapter 2. First of all, there are two midwives who are named, Shifra and Puah. And when the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, ordered them to kill all the little boys of the Hebrews, the slaves at birth, they refused. They disobeyed the king because, says Exodus, they feared God. They were God-fearing women. And quite possibly, that's how Aaron, who was Moses' older brother, survived. As we begin, we discover later in the book of Exodus that Moses had an older brother. Uh, three years older than he was, called Aaron. So he was around and had survived, possibly because of those midwives. And then there's Moses' own mother. We don't know her name from Exodus 2, but later on in the book, in chapter 6, we discover she was called Jochebed. And she had a husband called Amran. And she also disobeyed the king's orders when they saw something about this baby that convinced them that he was uniquely special in some way to God and God's future. And so their faith overcame their fear of the king for three months at least. And then there's Pharaoh's daughter who is unnamed in the story, who finds this little baby Moses floating in his basket on the river Nile, knows perfectly well that he's a Hebrew baby because he would have been circumcised, but she also chose to disobey, not just the government in general, but her own father, the Pharaoh. And she should have drowned the little fellow, but she took him in rescued him, adopted him, named him, raised him as her own son and as the grandson of the king, prince of Egypt, as he's known. So this whole story of Moses, even right here, just summarizing verse 23, it's saturated actually with the sovereignty of God over all human attempts to frustrate God's purposes and to destroy God's people. And that sovereignty of God operates through these women who refused to submit to the government and the faith of his mother especially, or his parents, as Hebrew says. So that's Moses' parents. And it's a good start to his story. It reminds us of those chapters in Exodus. But let's move on to Moses's decisions. If you look at the verses there from verses 24 on well, verse 20 yeah 24 on down I noticed that there's some very emphatic verbs all the way through. He refused, he chose, he left, he kept. It's just it's not just things that he thought about, these are actual emphatic actions that Moses chose to take by faith, what he decided to do. And then there are other words, as we'll see in a moment, which give his reasons. Uh, because the word because occurs quite often as well. So as we look at these decisions that Moses took by faith i would just ask you to be thinking in your own mind as we go through them how they might possibly connect in some way or another with your own life and some of the choices that you have to make so here's the first one Moses refused verse 24 he refused we read to be to be known as the son of pharaoh's daughter that is as a royal son at the court he had enormous privileges, didn't he? Stephen, we're told in the book of Acts, he takes it for granted that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action, says Stephen in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. So that, that was his identity. That was his status in the world of his day and of his upbringing. He had a privileged upbringing and an education. He had prospects. He was headed for the top tier of society. Indeed, if he was the grandson of the pharaoh, he was a potential future pharaoh. He could well have been in line to the throne itself. But when he had grown up, says Hebrews, when he was 40 years old, says Stephen, well, so some people take longer to grow up than others, He made this crucial life-changing choice. He renounced that Egyptian identity and status and all the privileges that went with it. He refused, says the text. It's a strong word. Now, he knew that he was an Egyptian. He was an Egyptian by adoption. He had an Egyptian mother and father in that sense. He knew that was his identity as an Egyptian prince. But he also knew that he was a Hebrew. Must have done. He was circumcised. And something of that background came through into his childhood and his upbringing. And somewhere along that journey, his faith in the God of his people, the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, meant that he faced a choice. The choice was which identity was his true self and his true destiny. And so he not only refused, but he chose, in verse 25, he refused the one in order to choose the other. And it must have been a costly choice that he made at that point. Because it would have seemed, don't you think, it would have seemed absolutely crazy to anybody in the court to whom he shared it, if he dared to. I mean, imagine the other princes or portiers or people in the government. You mean all this time when we thought you were one of us Egyptians, that you're actually one of them? those despised, smelly shepherds people, the Hebrews that we hate, those ethnic foreigners, those immigrants, that labor force that we're now using in this way. That's what they even say. Crazy thing to do to make his identity known. And what about his mother, his Egyptian mother, Pharaoh's daughter who had adopted him as a three-month-old baby? He was the only mother that Moses would ever really have known. And can you imagine what she would have said when Moses came in one day and says, you know what, mum? I'm going back to my Hebrew people. You what? That's where I rescued you from. You know? Don't you, well, don't, you don't remember, but I took you out of that river. You can't go back to those people. Should have drowned you when I had the chance, you might have thought. This was a costly choice he made. He refused his former identity in order to choose by faith the identity of the Hebrew people, the people of his God. And we shall see in just a moment why he did that. What was his reasoning? But the third action that he took, in his decision, was that he left. You see it there in verse 27. He left Egypt. Now, it's not clear exactly in the text whether that refers to the first time he left after killing the Egyptian uh, the Egyptian gang that we that we read about there in Stephen's account, or the second time when he left in the actual Exodus itself, 40 years later, with the people. Um, one reason why people think that it might be the second one is because we're told by Hebrews that he left not fearing the king's anger, whereas actually in Exodus 2 we read that Moses was afraid when he discovered that what he had done to the Egyptian gang master had been discovered, and he says he was afraid. But perhaps what Hebrews is meaning is that, yeah, he did fear, but it was by faith that he chose to leave Egypt. Or as the New English Bible translates I think perhaps just getting the sense of what it's saying here is that it's by faith he left Egypt, not because he feared the king's anger. He was afraid, but it wasn't because of his fear that he left. He left in faith. Anyway, whichever occasion it was, it wasn't just a physical, geographical leaving, you know, just moving out, as it were. There's also, I think, in the verb, a sense of spiritual, emotional, convictional leaving of Egypt. He left Egypt behind. He turned his back on that. He abandoned it. That was his old life, the life of Egypt. So he chose not just a new identity, As a Hebrew, but also a new allegiance, a new belonging, a new citizenship to his own people, the people of Israel and Israel's God. And then in one final act of faith before he left Israel, Egypt for good at the Exodus, we read in verse 28 that he kept the Passover. He refused, he chose, he left, but then he kept the Passover, which again, was an act of, well, pretty apparent crazy futility. I mean, to tell all these people to kill a lamb at night and to daub its blood on the door frames of their houses, which are probably like little slums there in Goshen, and then to prepare and eat a very hasty meal in the middle of the night and be prepared to leave the country at a moment's notice. (laughs) I mean, these were slaves. These were the slaves of a powerful empire, the most powerful empire in the region at this, time. They had no hope of escape or deliverance. But by faith, says Hebrews, Moses insisted that that's what they must do, and they did, and the rest is history. Actually, the greatest historical act of redemption in the Bible until the cross of Christ. Which took place at Passover time significantly, and indeed was the fulfillment of the Passover that Moses kept. So those then were his decisions. Can you see this as faith in action? As he chooses an identity and makes decisions on the basis of knowing the story he's in. The story of his God and of his people. He refused, he chose, he left, he kept. But why? Well, we need to move on then to Moses and his reasons. Because you can imagine, can as I suggested earlier, that his colleagues and his mother and others at court, when they hear of this decision that Moses has made, would be protesting, what are you thinking, man? Well, Hebrews tells us what he was thinking. And note again that he does use this language of thinking and regarding and looking ahead. A bit like a couple of weeks ago, when we we're thinking about Abraham, Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned, do you remember? That God could raise the dead. You see, neither in Abraham's case nor in Moses' case, this is not blind faith. This is rational, thinking, reasoned faith in which choices and actions that looked costly or crazy at the time made good sense in terms of what he was thinking. And once again, there are four of them. And here's the first that he saw something that was of greater value. It comes there in verses 25 and 26. Now, what seems to be happening here, it's almost as if Moses weighs up something, as it were, on scales or like on a seesaw, in a sense. On the one hand, uh, there's the first half of verse 25, he chose to be mistreated or ill-treated along with the people of God. And that goes along with the first half of verse 26, that he regarded disgrace. For the sake of Christ. Those are the two things that, in a sense, on one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale, I mean what's going to be better than that? There must be surely something, as it were, which will outweigh that ill treatment and disgrace. Well, no, because what he was faced with on the other side of the scales of the, of the seesaw is the second half of each verse. The second half, of verse 25, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, and at the end of verse 26 rather than or of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. So you can see these two things on either side. Let's think first of that right-hand side of what it was that Moses rejected, what he regarded as of lesser value than the disgrace and the ill treatment, the fleeting pleasures of sin and the treasures of Egypt. In other words, basically, the status and the benefits and the perks that would have been his or could have been his for a while at least as a prince or high up in the government for which he was being prepared. All the access, all the opportunity that that sort of position would have given him. When we use those words, the pleasures of sin, we immediately think of some kind of debauchery, you know, living in absolute sexual, you know, profligacy or something. It's not necessarily meaning that. The pleasures and the rewards of a political career, which is what he would have had, are not necessarily evil in themselves. God appoints government, not just in Israel, but in other countries as well. They wouldn't have necessarily been sinful by themselves. And Moses could have reasoned like this, that if he was able to rise up to higher political authority within the Egyptian court, then he could do something about the slavery of his own people. You know, he could, you know, adjust this hostile environment to these immigrants of his own people. He could exercise political power in the government to do something about the situation if he stayed in Egypt, or, of course, if he got plenty of wealth, as he would do uh, as a prince and everything else. Perhaps he could use some of his vast treasures of Egypt to do some charitable work among them, to help them out, to you know, help these widows and orphans of those who are being beaten in the slave fields and so on. He could have reasoned like that. Better to stay in Egypt and help them rather than choose what God was calling him to do, as Stephen suggests he already knew, which was to rescue his people. If that was God's plan for Moses' life, the redemption and the restoration of Israel, then to have chosen to stay for Moses would have been sin. It would have been resistance and rejection of the will of God. So he chose instead the other side of the scale, hardship, ill treatment with the people of God and disgrace for the sake of Christ, the anointed one. Because after all, who were these Hebrews that we read about? Well, they are, according to that, the people of God. Which God? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Moses that, or Isaac and Jacob that Moses would later meet at the burning bush. And what had this God done? He had Given such a promise to these people that through them, all nations on the earth would be blessed. Including, incidentally, Egypt, uh, by the way. Because Exodus 19, Isaiah, sorry Isaiah chapter 19, has a tremendous expression of God's ultimate blessing on the country of Egypt. Which we can actually say today, in many ways, is a Christian presence there. So here is this people of God, the God who has a future for them, and so Moses chooses to identify himself with what we would now call the right side of history. He sees where this story is going. He knows the story he's in. He knows the future. And we know, of course, as does the writer to the Hebrews, that that was a future that would eventually lead to Christ. And there's this interesting Paralleling, as it were, between the people of God, Israel, and the Old Testament, and Jesus as the Messiah. They're linked together. And so Moses recognizes that this is a far greater value than just a few years, fleeting, transient years, even perhaps the rest of his life, serving the government of Egypt with all its pleasures and treasures. And so he decided it was a greater value to play his part in the story of God and the people of God and the Christ of God and the eternity with God, then end up in a pyramid somewhere or as a mummy in the British Museum. That was a pretty good reasoning, don't you think? So that was his first thing. Greater value. The second thing is that we are told in this passage is that he was looking ahead to his reward. There it is at the second half of verse 26, because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, again, I think this is not just a kind of special prize giving for himself on the last great day or something like that, but the reward of God's future, the blessing of all nations that in in choosing to serve this God, He was choosing to serve the God who one day would bring about a reward that we read about in the New Testament for the Lord Jesus Christ that he purchased through his own blood at the cross, namely, an inheritance of nations, the nations of the world as the reward for the Lord Jesus Christ through the cross. On the 8th of October in 1732, two Moravian missionaries, that is from Germany, set sail from Copenhagen. They boarded a ship to go to the Danish West Indies in order to seek to preach the gospel among the black African slaves that were there. In fact, these two men, one was called Johann Dober, and the other was David Nietzsche. They were willing to become slaves, to sell themselves as slaves, in order to live among the African slaves in the West Indies. And as the ship was just drawing from the, from the dock, they called down to their family and their friends below that they were going so that the lamb who was slain may receive the reward of his suffering. And that expression became the slogan for Moravian missionaries for a couple of hundred years afterwards, including uh, those who led John Wesley, John Charles Wesley to faith in America, in the North America. That the lamb who was slain the Lord Jesus Christ himself, may receive the reward of his suffering. That was the reward that Moses too was looking forward to. The reward of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third thing that Hebrews tells us, Moses' reasoning is that he saw him who was invisible. There it is in verse 27. He persevered because he saw him who's invisible. Which sounds like a contradiction, isn't it? How can you see something that's invisible? Doesn't make sense. Almost certainly what it's talking about is Not necessarily just his encounter with God at the burning bush when he, in a sense, saw God, even though God was there in the presence of an angel and heard his voice, but probably it's simply referring to this fact that Moses had this unique experience of God all through his lifetime, Uh, a relationship with God which was more intimate than anyone else. Uh, Even God himself says, this is in Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, that God says, look, My servant Moses is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles, says God. He had this face to face relationship with the living God. And you see, that was Moses. But there's something in this for us because the closer you get to knowing God and his plans and his purposes for the world, which means, of course, the more you get to know the story of the Bible, by understanding God's plan and purposes for the world, the more it makes sense to act in faith, the more it makes sense to make your choices based on that story and God's future and not on the transient present comforts and conveniences that we might face up to if they're there. Because he saw God, he knew God. And finally, in his reasoning, because in verse 28 we read this, that by faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that... Do you see? That's a statement of purpose, of reasoning, of intention. So that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. You see, Moses realized he applied the blood of the lambs to those Israelite homes because he took God seriously, including God's warnings as well as God's promises. Moses knew that the immediate future included judgment as well as redemption, or rather redemption through judgment. He knew that there would be judgment upon Egypt in that horrendous night of death because of the Egyptians' unrepentant opposition and refusal to obey God that had gone on for months through all the plagues of Egypt. There had been that refusal to obey God, and it led to God's ultimate judgment upon them. And then through that would come the redemption and the salvation and the deliverance of the Israelites who were protected by the blood of the Lamb of the Passover that was slain in their place. So when Moses acted in faith by keeping the Passover, it's because he believed God. Believed God's warnings and God's promises. Well, there you have it. We've got Moses' decisions, all four of them, and we've got Moses' reasons, all four of them. And you know, it's astonishing when you think that through and you put all that together, how much it points again towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Astonishing to see that. Who took very similar decisions and actions for very similar reasons. Do you remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, where we read this, that Jesus... The Lord Jesus Christ, though he was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant, became made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross, and therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above every name. And you see this U-shape in the story of Jesus? Coming down to identify himself with us in order to receive the reward and the glory of his heavenly Father. Jesus also, like Moses, refused to cling to his identity as God for his own advantage. He chose to identify himself with us as a human being when he was born and as a sinner in his baptism. Us as sinners, even though he was not. He left like Moses, he left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace and emptied himself all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. And he not only kept the Passover, he was the Passover, the Passover lamb in our place. And he did it all because of that ultimate reward of bringing us eternal life and out of the slavery of death. So you see, the faith of Moses is amplified to this maximum level in the faith and the faithfulness of Jesus himself. Which means that when we walk by faith in the footsteps of Moses, whether it's costly or crazy or whatever, it means we're walking in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Which is why as this chapter comes to its conclusion the writer will immediately move us in chapter 12 to our memory verse, looking onto Jesus, the perfecter, the true believer, the one who perfected our faith. Well, we need to begin to draw this to a close. What does it mean to us? Well, first of all, it means that in Moses' story, the life of faith often demands countercultural choices. See, when you became a Christian or become a Christian, putting your faith in Christ, it's not just, although of course it is, but it's not just about getting your sins forgiven and having eternal life beyond death. It means that you take on a new identity. You become a new person in Christ. You have a new belonging, the people of God. You have a new story, God's story, the Bible, the promises of God. And that must affect the choices that you make in life. And it may mean, sometimes for some people, it may mean declining to maximize the opportunities that are there because of your past, your upbringing, your status, the the influence that you could have, the wealth you could acquire because of having a, a good family and an expensive education, whatever it may be. And when you choose, as it were, to set that to one side in order in some way or another to serve Christ, that can be baffling to your family or to your friends and colleagues. Seems crazy. And yet God calls you to it in some way. When we were at All Nations Christian College, uh, where I lived and worked with my wife for 13 years before we came to All Souls, that's a college, All Nations, which is training people for cross-cultural mission. Most of the students there in their late 20s, early 30s, most of them have professional qualifications and experiences, doctors or lawyers or teachers, all sorts of professional skills. And prospects, and yet they are choosing not to maximize their career opportunities and prospects here in the u k or in Europe, where many of them came from, but to use all that they're, that gifting to serve the needy and the poor in other parts of the world for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. I remember one uh, one man young man who was a very well qualified, experienced reconstructive surgeon. Actually, related to a member of, of our ch- church family here at All Souls, who told me that he could have made a fortune in cosmetic surgery here or in the U.S., but who chose instead to use his gifts and his skills for reconstructive surgery of leprosy sufferers in Nepal. Now, you see, this doesn't—it means that all the training and skill and blessing that we might get, like Moses had, doesn't go to waste. When we choose to identify ourselves as a people of God, God doesn't do waste. God used all that education and status that Moses had, his experience in Egypt, when he had to go into significant leadership uh, and be a lawgiver and everything else, when he entrusted it into the story of God and turned his back on Egypt. But this isn't just for missionaries who give it all up and go overseas. What does it mean? What could it mean for you? in everyday ordinary life and work. That was why it was so good to hear from Tim a little bit earlier. Very simple decision and action taken by faith that might look foolish to other people. To not be dazzled and seduced by the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt, but to use whatever God has given you for his kingdom. That was Moses' choice. That was his story. And was it crazy? Well, no, because you see, Moses' story, as I've said, was only part of God's story. And in God's story, the reward of faith outweighs all other alternatives. You see, Moses could see, as I've said repeatedly, that God's story went way beyond the pleasures and treasures of Egypt, which would have filled his whole horizon. That they would outlive all Pharaoh's uh, reality, more enduring than the pyramids or anything else. And he wanted his life to be bound up with that story. And that was a far greater alternative, sorry, far greater than any alternative there could have been. That's why the Apostle Paul, who did something similar, could say that nothing compares to the reward of knowing Christ And belonging to Him. This morning in church we sang All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own, all I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there's no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. That's how it works out. Nothing compares. To that, So all struggles that we talked about at the beginning, all the challenges, all the weeping of the present will have been worthwhile in the light of that great ultimate reward to hear the words of the Lord Jesus himself, well done, good and faithful servant. And so let me finish with where I began. Choices and actions of faith that seem costly or crazy at the time, makes sense when they're seen in the light of God's story and God's future. And so the only question that remains is, what story are you living in? The transient, fleeting world story or the story of God, which will go on for all eternity? Which story are you living in? Let's just spend a moment or two asking what this means for you. Father, thank you that your story has gone on through the whole of the scriptures, through the stories we're reading about in this chapter, and right on through, and will continue ultimately until you return and we are with you in the new creation. Help us, Lord, to live our lives for you, for your story, so that we may live as we shall sing in a moment, all for Jesus, for Jesus' sake. Amen.